Cool. So, worship. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> uh, I, need to, I need to move this guy up. Look at this. So, I feel like I need to give a warning. We're going to go through uh, quite a bit of history today. Hopefully, yeah, everyone's okay with that. Um, worship is such a... We could spend a whole year just teaching on worship and the different things about worship. Um, so to give one, one teaching is kind of like we're going to cover a lot of ground in a pretty short amount of time. And so uh, the main two things I want to talk about today are some pretty uh, typically Old Testament words. One is the word priest, and one is the word tabernacle. Um, and then, yeah, so I want to talk about the word priest, tabernacle, and then we're going to bring it back to us today, the New Testament church, what is our role in all of this, and then kind of hit a few Hebrew words for worship that kind of explain why we do the things that we do. Um, so quick question, when you hear the word priest, let's just rapid fire, what is like the first thing that comes to your mind? What, what comes to your head? Robes. Robes. <laughs> That's awesome. What else? What was that? Catholic. Catholic. Yeah. Levites. Oh, yeah. That's going to be a big one. What does a priest do? Yeah, sacrifice. That's, that's the big one. All right, so priest is, an old, like I said, pretty Old Testament word. Um, it's a noun with, like, an implied verb. So you can't just, like, be a priest and not priest. You have to priest to be a priest. Does that make sense? Um, so... <laughs> yeah. Okay, so yeah, let me, let me back up real quick. A lot of this stuff today, it's going to be a lot of history. We're going to get some knowledge. Um, and what I would hate is if we just got a lot of knowledge and our hearts weren't stirred to worship any farther. Okay, so as I'm kind of going through some narrative stuff, some, some information, I want you just to do your best to just like connect it to your life now. We might not have the time to just like bring it all back in terms of your life right now. Um, but I want you to kind of Start to connect those dots yourself if you can. So, like I said, you can't be a priest without priesting. So the priest, uh, in the Old Testament, they would minister, they would serve. It was their job to basically do two things. They would minister to God via sacrifice, like Adrian said, and also kind of make atonement for sin on behalf of the people. So they mediated between God and man, and then they uh, ministered to God. We're going to talk about this concept of ministering to God a little bit more in depth later, because I know it can be kind of confusing, like, how could we minister to God? Does he need anything from us? No, he doesn't. Um, but that was kind of the role. So if you turn to Exodus 19, let's all go there. Um, real quick, can someone give me, like, the Sports Center version of Israel's history up until... Uh, up until they're out of Egypt. Like, how did we get to, the, right now in Exodus 19, we're in the, we're in the desert. What, what has happened up to this point? Real quick. Sport, yeah. Israelites were stupid and didn't listen. That happens pretty much the whole Old Testament. Uh, hold on a second. Yeah. 
Yep. Yes. So God gave a promise to Abraham and his family line that they were going to be this great nation. Then, let's skip down, they find themselves in Egypt. What happens in Egypt? They become slaves. And then God gives Moses and his brother Aaron and the whole nation a promise that he's going to free them from slavery. Um, what is that sequence of them? How does that happen? Does anyone remember? Plagues, Passover, and then eventually they get to the Red Sea. And God just dominates Pharaoh and all his enemies. Um, and they kind of get free from Egypt. And so this is kind of where we're picking up in the story, chapter 19, is this is like, if you could just kind of put yourself in the story a little bit. Israel right now, they're not really much of a nation. They don't have... Uh, much structure. They don't have much. They don't have a king. They don't, they don't have any of these things. They're kind of just these wonders in the desert. And so this is kind of God's first address to the nation of like what he wants them to be. So every nation, right, like has an identity of who they are. So we talk about America. There are like core documents that we have, um, like, you know, the Declaration of Independence, all these things that kind of give our nation an identity and the things we value and like who we are as a people, right? So this is God's kind of like First revealing of himself in Sinai in the wilderness, and this is how he's giving them their identity. This is what it says. It says, exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, give these instructions to the family of Jacob, announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. All right, and this is it, verse five. He says, now if you obey me and keep my covenant, you will be, number one, my own special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth, for all the earth belongs to me. And number two, you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. All right, so two things here that God points out in their national identity. Number one, they're going to belong to him. All right, he's, they're going to be his own special people from all the earth. And number two, they're going to be an entire kingdom of priests. And they're not Catholic, so how does that work? <laughs> um, so this is God's kind of, if you can just imagine, like, God's dream for the nation, that they're going to be, they're going to belong to him, be his own special possession, and be a kingdom that, in the verb sense, priests, they priest to him. Okay, so God wanted a nation of priests, but like John said, things didn't really go so hot with the Israelites all the time. They kind of started worshiping idols and doing all sorts of stupid things, and that didn't really happen. So instead of just a whole nation of priests, God got a tribe of priests which uh, I think Nick or Trudy said were the Levites. So there was one tribe, the people of Levi, who got to be the priests and ministers unto God. Um, we don't necessarily have time to get into it today, but uh, if you go to Exodus 32, which is the story of the golden calf, which I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with, um, it kind of is the story of how the priests, how the Levites became the priests. Basically, after everyone builds this idol, Moses says, asks everyone, who of you is still for the Lord? 
And these people from Levi kind of step aside and they say, we're going to stick with God. And so Moses says, great, you're now appointed to be priests before God. Nobody else gets to do this. <laughs> um, so God wanted a nation of priests, but he only got, he only got a tribe. Does that make sense to everyone? We tracking? Cool, 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 cool. Um, oh, look at this. I jumped the gun a little bit. All right, so like we said earlier, the, the, the um, function of the priest happened in this thing called the tabernacle. Uh, throughout scripture, there's basically three main tabernacles. We're going to hit all three today. Um, and the first one being the tabernacle of Moses. How many of you guys uh, grew up with like the cool felt board things? You guys remember that? You had like the felt board and you had like the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. We have it downstairs. Man, I could have used that. That would have been awesome. Um, all right, so we're, we're going to take a, a, a quick minute and talk about this word, tabernacle. Um, real quick, what comes to mind when we hear the word tabernacle? What are some words that pop into your head? Dwelling, yeah. What was that? God's house, yeah. John, you had something? Amen. Yeah, this is uh, quite literally what it was. Uh, any, anyone else? Set apart, yeah. That's great. Holy of Holies, that's really good. Um, yeah, so like you said, the tabernacle was kind of this special place for hosting God's presence. Uh, it was his dwelling place, place to meet with him uh, if you were a priest or a high priest. Um, it wasn't like today where we have... Uh, access to God and relationship. It's not like there was, we, we have the Holy Spirit today so we can have communion with God now. It wasn't like that back in the day. Um, they had this one place. And part of the reason I think God gave them one place was because he thought if he could give them a place, they might not go worship idols, you know, if they just had like one place to go. Um, it kind of worked at some points, but they still worshiped a lot of idols. Um, Yep, so everything you see here was kind of like the design, the instruction, all this stuff is given by God in, in the Old Testament. Um, what do we got here? Yes, Tabernacle Moses literally means tent, place of dwelling, sanctuary. Uh, like Brad said, you had a couple different like stages. So you had like, we can go back. You had like your outer core, you had your holy place. Uh, there was like a veil between you and the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and every day they were sacrificing animals basically to worship God and to atone for the sins of the people. That was their worship. Uh, real quick, what, what do we know about the Ark of the Covenant? I know it's kind of like a, yeah, what do, we, what do we know about it? God in a box. <laughs> we don't want to put God in a box. Um, yeah, put blood on it once a year. The mercy seat. What, what did it symbolize in the nations? Anyone know? The presence and his power. And another word that gets associated with the Ark of the Covenant a lot is glory, um, which I feel like we could spend a whole day talking about glory, but we, don't, we can't do that today. Um, but so, yeah, the, the Ark kind of represented, uh, represented the... The presence of God, his, his dwelling place, his glory, and it would rest in the tabernacle, right? So there was just a special place. It wasn't like today where, we, you know, we say God's presence is all around us. It was like 
there was just one place, and it was here at the Ark in the Tabernacle. And it was kind of the thing that Israel, it was, it was the glory of God, but it was also the glory of Israel. Like, it was the thing they held in very high esteem of, like, this is kind of like our, I don't want to say our trophy, but it's, our, it's the thing we're most proud of and we kind of boast in is the Ark. So um, in 1 Samuel 4, we're just, we're just cruising right along here in history. Um, there's a story that we might not read the whole story, but the Israelites are fighting this nation, the Philistines. And so back up, this is right before Saul becomes king. So in case you didn't know, for a long time, Israel didn't have a king. They had judges and all this stuff. Eventually they get very mad and they ask God to basically give them a human king because they wanted to be like the other nations of the earth. So uh, right before this happens in 1 Samuel 4, the Israelites are getting pummeled by the Philistines, and they have this great idea. They think, let's just carry the ark out to the battlefield, and maybe God will smote our enemies if we just carry this ark out here, um, which makes sense in some ways, but that's just not what happened. The enemies just capture the ark. The Philistines take it. It's gone. Um, and there's kind of this, yeah, there's this story at the end of chapter 4 where uh, Eli's daughter-in-law, when she heard that the Ark of God had been captured, she kind of like in grief and reaction gives birth to her child. Uh, and she dies in childbirth and then names, before she dies, names the child Ichabod, which quite literally means where is the glory? So they lost the glory of God and the people are so grieved over the loss of the glory of God. Um, Ichabod. Don't name your kid that, um, <laughs> unless you want to. But All right, so fast forward. Uh, Israel develops a new kingdom. Saul gets anointed by Samuel, and he becomes the king. Um, we're not going to spend a ton of time on Saul, but what do we, really quick, what do we know about his, his time of being king? What, what happened? Was he good? Was he bad? A little bit of both, yeah. He feared man's opinion a lot. Yep, and by the end of his reign, um, he makes a pretty big mistake, disobeys God, and by the end of his reign, it actually says that God was so grieved that he had made Saul king. Uh, he regretted making Saul king. But during this time, uh, God finds this boy in the hillside whose name is David. Um, David was, yeah, kind of this little shepherd boy, and God tells the prophet Samuel, he says, hey, uh, Saul, I regret making Saul king because he doesn't know my heart, but out there, I have this guy, and he's after my own heart, and one day he's going to be the king of Israel. So fast forward in time, Saul dies in battle. I know we're just moving along here in the story. Saul dies in battle, and David is about, uh, I don't know, maybe in his 30s now, and he, it's his time to become king. And this is kind of where we're going to pick up the story a little bit, talking about David. Is everyone on, on track right now? Everyone good? Cool. If you have questions, like if there's gaps in the story, uh, just raise your hand and ask me, because I've read this story a lot, so it, you know, it, it's very like assumed to me. And so if that's not the case, that's okay. Just raise your hand and, or shout me down or something. 
Um, so we're coming to what? Okay, yeah, I passed. Um, all right, so we're gonna we're gonna pick up in First Chronicles fifteen. And let me verse 25. Okay, so David just became king. Like, when I say just became king, I mean like it's, it's been maybe if not even a month since he became king. Um, remember, David is like the anticipated king. He's like been in waiting for a long time. Um, even when Saul was king, people were writing these songs about David. Saul is slain his thousands, but David slain his ten thousands. He's like this legendary warrior king um, who I want to be like. The warrior king part. Um, all right, can someone read First Chronicles 15, 25 uh, to the start of chapter 16? And this is Chronicles, not Corinthians. I always make that mistake. But Cool. Thanks, Mike. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of units of a thousand went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. Because God had helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, seven bulls and seven rams were sacrificed. Now David was clothed in a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who were carrying the ark, and as were the musicians and Kenaniah, who was in charge of the singing of the choirs. David also wore a linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouts, with the sounding of ram's horns and trumpets and of cymbals and the playing of lyres and harps. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David dancing and celebrating, she despised him in her heart. Cool. All right, so this is a wild story, guys. This is what's happening here. David just became king. There's a, sometimes the Old Testament, like they don't, or the Bible, they don't use like exclamation points or like all caps when I feel like they should. Because um, there's some things in here that are like, kind of, like, did David really do this? So here's what he did. It says, he gathered the generals of the army. And later in verse 28, it says, all of Israel. Okay? He's got the whole nation. This is what's happening. The whole nation parading with musicians and trumpets and a choir. Parading from the house of this guy, Obed-Edom to get the Ark of the Covenant back to the capital city, Jerusalem, okay? Guys, this would, be like, this would be like if Joe Biden took office and he was like, all right, guys, before we handle any, like, the student debt crisis or, like, any of this other stuff, the first thing we got to do is just, like, we're going to set up this tent of worship and we're going to get the whole nation to parade to this tent so we can, like, celebrate the Ark of the Covenant being back in our nation. We can celebrate God's presence in our nation. All right, that's pretty much what David's doing right now. He's like, we're just going to get whole nation, we're going to throw a wild party because we get the ark back. All right, it's a big deal to him. Um, I'm going to pick up in chapter 16, first couple verses here. It says, they brought the ark of God and placed it inside the special tent David had prepared for it. So David had prepared a, a tent or a tabernacle for the ark to dwell in. It's important to note, and we're going to get into this in a second, 
the tent that David is bringing this to is not the tabernacle we just talked about. It's not the tabernacle of Moses. It's just a different tent. He placed in the special tent, and they presented burnt offerings and peace offerings to God. Verse 2, when he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he gave to every man and woman in all of Israel a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. Praise God. David appointed, we should do that during worship. David appointed the following Levites to lead the people in worship before the ark of the Lord, to invoke his blessings, to give thanks, to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. And then there's Asaph, the leader of this group, sounded the cymbals. Second to him was Zechariah, followed by Jael, and these people's names, who I'm not going to read because they're hard to read. And the priests played the trumpets regularly. Everybody say regularly. The priests played the trumpets regularly before the Ark of God's Covenant. All right, and then David erupts into a 36-verse spontaneous worship song because he's so excited about the Ark being back in his city. Skip down to verse 37. We're not going to read his song, but it's just a song of celebration. He's just so happy, and he kind of recounts Israel's history real quick and how God has led them to having the ark back, and he's so stoked. Verse 37 of chapter 16, it says, David arranged for Asaph and his fellow Levites to serve regularly. Everybody say regularly. Before the ark of the Lord's covenant, doing whatever needed to be done each day. Wow. So here's what just happened. (laughs) David parades the whole nation to get the ark back to this tent, and then... Once the ark is back to the tent, he gathers a ton of musicians and singers to, with one job, to just sing and worship before the presence of God. Um, later in chapter 23, it kind of lays out how many musicians were there, like how many David had appointed to be there. And it says in chapter 23, there was 4,000 musicians, so 4,000 Levites, 288 singers, and 4,000 gatekeepers. All right, so do the math. That's over 8,000 people that David has now financed to be on his full-time staff to worship. That's all he did. So he somehow, we read Psalm 27 this morning during worship. David had this thing in his heart that he was like, hey, one thing I desire of the Lord is to meditate on his house all the days of my life. And he understood this thing about the glory of God that he said, as soon as I become king, the number one priority is going to get 10,000 people or 8, eight to 10,000 people to have a job where day and night, regularly, they're just going to offer sacrifices of praise before God's ark. All right. So that phrase I just said, sacrifice of praise, is really, really important. I want to point out a couple of differences between David's tabernacle and the tabernacle we just talked about, Moses. Here we go. Tabernacle Moses had outer court, it had furnishings, and there was a veil that had no access to God's presence or to the ark. Um, After 1 Samuel 4, the story we read about the ark being gone, the ark's not even there. There's no presence of God. All right, so there's just animal sacrifices going on, no access, no presence. And there's a few singers, a few. Skip over to David's tabernacle. He doesn't have any of these things. He has no outer court, he has no holy place, and he has no veil, and the ark is there with no veil between the people and the presence of God. And what's so interesting is after this 
um, first kind of coronation event, there's never another animal sacrifice offered. The only thing David offers is spiritual sacrifices or a song of worship. That's the only thing he gives to God. He never gives another animal. And rather than a few priests, he's got a great company, like we just said, about 8,000-ish people. Um, so David, like I said, for the ark, the David's tabernacle lasted for about 30 years. So do the math. 8,000 people, 30 years, paying them a full living wage to have a job, to worship. This cost David a lot of money and a lot of time. Um, and so it was pretty extravagant, the thing David did. And it's also worth mentioning that during this time, David's reign, Israel was kind of like at its height. It was like the most prosperous nation uh, or the most prosperous time in its history. Um, it was thriving. David was kicking butt in all these wars, uh, as he does. And it was, a, it was a good time. The rest of history after this, David is a bit rocky. Like John said, it kind of goes back. They kind of go back to their Israelite ways. Um, David dies. There's a lot of kings. Some are good. Most are bad. A lot of them turn to idol worship. Um, and so what's really important is during this time of the kings, after David is gone, there's a promise from a prophet, Amos. So we're going to turn to Amos 9 real quick. We're really trekking along in history here. I think we've covered about 4,000 years so far. What? Hey, thanks, man. All right, so is everyone tracking with me here? Everybody lost? Cool, cool. What was that? Amos 9, yeah. I actually, I have it written down. I don't know why I'm looking for it. So David has this extravagant tent, right? Day and night worship, 8,000 musicians. 30 to 35 years, something like that is his reign. And after David, the tent kind of dies out. It doesn't really happen anymore. Um, they start putting idols up in there. And then some kings are good, and they, like, restore it. And then some kings are bad, and they, like, put more idols up in there. And it's just a, it's a mess. So during one of these kings, though, there's a prophet, Amos. And the book of Amos, he's kind of laying out some things that are going to happen to people of Israel, like there's going to be some judgment, there's going to be some bad things, you're going to get captured, which all that happens. But then at the very end, he gives this promise in chapter 9. And the promise starts in verse 11. So you, Amos says, well, God says via Amos, in that day, I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls from the ruins. I will rebuild it and restore its former glory. And Israel will possess what is left of Edom and all the nations I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken, and he will do these things. The Greek translation of this verse that is quoted in the book of Acts, it says, uh, I will restore its former glory so that the rest of humanity, including the Gentiles, all those I've called to be mine might seek me. So God gives a promise that one day he's going to restore this tabernacle of praise that David established, but it's not just going to be for the Jews. It's not just going to be for the priests, but it's going to be for uh, the Gentiles, which is us, and all of mankind who he has called to seek him. Okay, so he gives this promise. Boom, boom, boom. Everybody tracking? So David, you good, Michael? 
Cool, cool. David understood something that was in God's heart when it comes to sacrifice. Um, if we turn to Psalm 51, there's a quick verse here. Psalm 51, David writes, he writes this, he says, you, meaning God, do not desire sacrifice, or I would offer one. You don't want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. So the Bible never really tells us uh, why David did the things that he did. And um, at the same time, God calls David a man after his own heart. The Bible never tells us why God said this about David. We only can uh, infer and assume based on what we know about David's life. But here we kind of see something um, that David kind of got that was in the heart of God. And it was that God was never really interested in just like animal sacrifices or external expression of worship, but he was looking for the sacrifice of our hearts and of um, a sacrifice of praise. And David gave him that and to the point where God said, this is a guy who's after my heart. And then to the point that God says, when I fulfill my promise of having a nation of priests, the way it's going to happen is through me rebuilding the, this tent that David built of praise and worship. So I don't know if that means literally, probably not. Well, we're going to get to that in a second. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, cool. When I was just kind of meditating on uh, David's tabernacle, there's a few things that stuck out to me that I just want to hit real quick about David's worship. Number one, David's worship cost him a lot. Uh, quite literally, he spent a lot of money uh, on his worship. It was costly to him, okay? So there's an element of David's worship that pleased God that was costly worship. Number two, we said this word a lot, the word regular, but the tabernacle of David was continual. It was day and night. It wasn't uh, a special event. It wasn't when God did something cool or they won a battle. It was day and night. It was frequent. Number two, uh, yeah, the tabernacle or David's worship here was inconvenient. David structured his entire nation around praising the Lord. Um, and that kind of leads into number four. The tabernacle made the priority of the presence. So we read in Psalm 24, David said, one thing I desire of the Lord, uh, that I may, well, he actually lists three things, which is kind of confusing, but uh, <laughs> if you think about it. But he says, one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfection and meditating in his temple. So it's important to keep in mind that David wasn't just a worship leader. Like, he wasn't just a musician. He was a king, and actually, he was a good king. He, uh, like I said, he was kicking butt in battle. He was reforming the nation. He was, like, the great king of Israel. Um, and so it's not that he didn't have other things to focus on. It's not that he didn't have other priorities and things that he had to worry about. It was just the matter of how he placed those priorities. He said, number one is going to be presence and praise, and everything else is just going to take subsequent place under that. And I don't know what inspired him to believe this, but he was basically just like, hey, we're going to run a nation, and I just believe that if we can run a nation where the number one thing is uh, worshiping God and offering a sacrifice of praise, everything else is just going to take care of itself. So he had his one thing first. Um, I think it's just important to keep that in mind. It's not like he didn't have a job or other things to do. He just had like a priority. Does that make sense? Mm, come on. 
I'm, I'm shouting myself down. Oh, oh. All right, so real quick, we're talking about the life of David. So let's keep the promise of Amos 9 in our minds. One day, it's not just going to be the Jews, but it's going to be all of mankind. That's the promise. Um, I want to look at a couple things real quick in the life of David, in the life of Jesus that match up. So um, for those of you who don't know, God gave a promise to David and the whole nation of Israel that one day there was going to be this Messiah king who was going to deliver them and bring justice to the nations, um, and he was going to come from David's family line. So back in the day, family lines were like a big deal. They're not really such a big deal in our culture. Maybe they are. I don't know. But it was a big deal. So when David becomes king, and then there's all these promises that there's never going to be, there's never not going to be a king from David's line on the throne of Israel. And then eventually it comes to Jesus, who comes from his line. So a couple of things, though. David is, in a lot of ways, a foreshadowing of Christ. So he built a tabernacle of praise. He was the first one to build a tabernacle of praise. But there's also a couple other things. Number one, he was first a shepherd, right? His life story, he started out as a shepherd and then ascends to being the king. He builds uh, the tabernacle of David, which has musicians and no more animal sacrifices, but it gives spiritual sacrifices. Uh, he's rejected by Saul. For those of you familiar with that story, Saul kind of hunts him down for a while. <laughs> and then eventually he gets exalted as the king of Israel. David functioned both as the king to the people and a priest unto God. So he had two functions, king and priest. Uh, let's parallel that to Jesus, all right? He is what? He's the good shepherd. He's the shepherd of Israel. Um, he is not the king of Israel, but he's the king of the world. He's the king of kings. And rather than building a tabernacle of a tent with uh, a physical building, he built the true tabernacle, which is now us, his church. And uh, he was rejected at Calvary on the cross, and then it now is what exalted at the right hand of the Father. He is our king, and he is our great high priest. So there's a lot of shadows there. Does that, does that track with everyone? Cool. So through Jesus, God, what, fulfilled his promise. Let's turn to 1 Peter 2, 9 real quick. Actually, just 1 Peter 2. So you remember all the way back in Exodus, God gave um, his dream for the nation of Israel, which was a promise that if they obey and do the things that he says, he's going to make them into a kingdom of priests. We just covered all this history to show that how basically that didn't happen immediately. But Jesus now has come. He's brought all of us in, just like he said he would. And he's made us into his tabernacle. Um, First Peter 2, everybody, everybody there? Or content with me reading it to you? Um, it says this. This is Peter writing. He says, you are coming to Christ, who is, what, the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but chosen by God for great honor. And you, meaning us, are what? Living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are what? His holy priests. 
Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. We're going to skip down a couple, couple, couple of verses to verse 9. He says, you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are what? Royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Did anyone notice what verse 9, the two things that Peter points out here? Nation and priest. Exodus 30, or 19, sorry. God said two things to the nation of Israel. You're going to belong to me. You're going to be my own special people. And number two, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. Peter writes this. He says, you are a holy nation. You are what? You're God's very own possession. You belong, and you are royal priest. So God fulfilled his promise that he wasn't just going to have a tribe of priests, but he was going to have a nation. But rather than a physical nation on the earth, he has his church. We are now the, the holy priest, the nation and kingdom of priests. Um, if you turn to Revelation 1 real quick, Real quick, I'm just going to read it. It says, um, this is kind of John's greeting to the churches. He says, all glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us, what, a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. So a lot of us are comfortable or maybe familiar with the idea that uh, as redeemed children of God, we are sons and daughters, right? Everyone, everyone feel pretty good about that idea? We're, we're sons, we're daughters, we're loved by God, we're chosen by him. So uh, in, in the scripture, what's really interesting is that this kind of, like we already pointed out, this idea of belonging and being belonging to God is a lot of times tied with this idea of being a priest. And so... If a son and daughter is kind of our primary identity, being a priest would be our primary function. It's what we do as sons and daughters. We priest, right? So, but what does that mean now? We don't have temples. We don't have uh, robes, maybe, unless, I mean, I could wear a robe. You could wear a robe. Um, we don't have robes. We don't have priests. We don't have animal sacrifices. And actually, Jesus has mediated between uh, he's our great high priest, so we don't need to offer uh, a sacrifice for the purpose of atoning for sin. Jesus already took care of that, right? So why does God still want us to be a nation of priests? Well, the I guess this is my argument now. <laughs> uh, our role now is the same. It's to minister to God, to uh, sacrifice, spiritual sacrifice to him, and to mediate between God and people to be a place, just like the tabernacle, a place of encounter where people can encounter the living God. So just like Peter said, uh, we are the living stone of God's temple. Now, it's important to note that he didn't say, like, you yourself are God's temple. He said, like, you're a stone, and we together build one temple, which is yeah, God's spiritual house. So when we talk about essential church, uh, it's important to note that there is something that scripture highlights that is important in the gathering of all the people of God as God's spiritual house, right? It's not about a building. Um, it's not about a physical tabernacle. 
but it's about um, being a spiritual tabernacle that offers not animal sacrifices, but sacrifice, sacrifices of praise. Does that make sense, everyone? So we talk about ministry to God, um, which is kind of a weird thing. Uh, how does a priest minister to God? I think it's worth mentioning that uh, we don't have anything that God needs. Like, there's nothing we can give to God that he needs from us. Um, we minister to people. A lot of times that's not the case, right? A lot of times, you know, the Bible is very clear in our mandate to minister to uh, the orphan or the homeless or the widow, and to, a lot of times that requires meeting physical needs that they really do need. Um, maybe it's a place to stay or some food, and that is ministry to, to people. So it's important to note that in our ministry to God, we don't have anything that he needs that we can give him. But I have a few things that I feel like scripture lines out that we can give nonetheless. So four things. Number one, Things we give. Number one, we offer our lives as living sacrifices. Can someone turn to Romans 12 and read that scripture for me? Four for four. That means please. Yeah, just verse one, 12 one. So it's just cool. The language there just really reflects a lot of language we've been reading so far in Scripture. So God, or, or Paul here is charging the Roman church to be what? A living sacrifice, a holy people, and that this is the way we truly worship him, is by offering our lives to him. Once again, I feel like you could just preach a whole thing on that. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? Um, I'm sure all of us in the room could pinpoint the things in our lives that it means to, to offer them as a sacrifice to God. Uh, number two, we offer our hearts. We already read this verse, but I'm going to read it again in Psalm 51, verse 15. 15 through 17, actually. I'll just read it real quick. Uh, actually, I'm going to start at, oh yeah, 15. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. So in our priesthood to God, we offer our lives and we offer our hearts uh, in repentance and, and, and praise, which is the next one we're going to look at. Number three, we do offer our praise. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. And the last one in our ministry to God, we offer him prayer. So if we can jump to, can someone go to Psalm 141, verse 2, real quick? This is our boy David with some bars here, as he does. We love David. Has anyone got 141, verse 2? Yeah. Mm. I'm just going to say it one more time. 
David is writing to God, accept my prayer as incense offered to you and my upraised hands as an evening sacrifice or evening offering, depending on which translation you have. So David, once again, captured this thing in God's heart that was God didn't just want morning and evening ritual sacrifices of animals and grain and all this stuff, but he actually says, accept my upraised hands as an, in my prayer as a sacrifice. So one of the things I guess I kind of want to draw here um, as we are starting to wrap this up is, so a lot of history, a lot of knowledge, right? And I hope that the two things we can recognize is, number one, worship. When we talk about worship, it's not just a song, right? I think we all pretty comfortable with that idea, right? Worship is not just a song. It's not just something we sing. It's not just a melody. It's not just um, instruments. And if you're a musician, it's like, it doesn't just apply to you if you're a musician. Worship is, like Romans 12, 1 says, it's the offering of our lives as a living sacrifice. That's our true spiritual worship, is to offer our lives to God. So I hope we all recognize that. At the same time, even if you're not a musician in the room, I hope you recognize through the story of David and through the Psalms and all those things, kind of the mandate that scripture gives us of bringing a song to God, of bringing a song of praise to the Lord and how it's, it's, it's not one or the other. It's not just a life, but it's not just a song, but it has to be both of those things together. And so it's important for us as a church to live a life of worship, but it's also important for us as believers and Christians to bring a song of praise to God. Um, yeah, it's not about being worship leaders or a musician. And I mean, let's be honest, a lot of times in the American church, and I'm, I mean, I'm American, so it's the only really church I can really talk about, but... <laughs> A lot of times we can treat gathering together still like the Old Testament, where it's like we've got a priest up here who's doing the ministry to God, and it's like his job to minister. And I'm not, I don't say this as a criticism or like make people feel bad, but I just guess what I want to point out is the, the, the mandate to priest to God is not a mandate for a worship leader or a musician, but it's a mandate for a Christian. So when we gather together, it is our collective goal to priest to minister to God and to give him a sacrifice of praise. And so, yeah, the guy in the mic, whether it's Brad or Michael or myself or Katie, whoever it is, they, they do that by leading us together. But it is all of our identity and our function as sons and daughters to priest to the Lord, to minister to him, to offer him our hearts and our praise and our, even our prayer. Does that make sense to everyone? Cool. So, real quick, not, not that quick, semi-quick, I want to go through kind of more, expanding this idea more, how do we offer a sacrifice of praise? We're going to break into some Hebrew words here that I probably can't pronounce because I'm not Hebrew, but these are uh, eight different words that are used throughout the scripture that are all used that translate into our English language as either praise or worship or something like that. You guys ready? Eight words. Here we go. Number one, halal. Everybody say halal. halal. All right. Can somebody read uh, Psalm 149, verse 1? Praise ye the 
Great, so that word there, praise, is halal. It translates to praise, or boast, or celebrate, or clamorously foolish. Uh, it can mean to rave, to sing, to rage. Uh, all of these forms of praise are offered in an attitude of delight, to be bright, to be splendid, to make famous, to cause to shine. Um, we read the story of the ark coming back in Jerusalem, right? We just read that, First Samuel 16. Mike read at the end of the chapter, the ark comes back and David, <laughs> I don't recommend this, but David is stripped naked, uh, <laughs> dancing wildly before the Lord because he's so excited about the presence of God being back in his town. Uh, this kind of praise that David offered there was a halal praise. It was a halal. Uh, when the heavenly host uh, announced the coming of Jesus, you guys probably know the story, they're singing, they're singing praise. This kind of praise is halal praise. They're joyously making noise. Um, when was our last Bible night? Like, a, not this one that just happened, but. Okay, so in July. How many of you guys were here at the worship weekend in July? Saturday night, Michael and Katie were leading, and Lee was playing the drum, uh, which always brings in the halal praise. Lee was playing the drum, and we started dancing wildly. Lish had like a rain stick and was like waving that thing in the air, and it was, it was weird. Um, <laughs> but we were dancing wildly. People were laughing. People were just like throwing their arms, flailing, and it was be kind of like, you know, to rage, to rave, to uh, make to offer a praise and an attitude of delight, right? We were halal praising. So, uh, yeah, sometimes we just need a good halal praise, you know? You know what I'm saying? All right, number two. Somebody say tequila. tequila. Not, not tequila. <laughs> Come on, guys. This is church. No, I was kidding. All right, I'm going to read a verse real quick. Real quick, we're just kind of hitting these verses. I won't read all of them. Um, three, two, one, two. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, this actually should be Psalm 22, 3. That's a mistake. But it says, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. That word, praise, is tehillah. Um, I'm going to skip over to Psalm 33 real quick. It says, let the godly sing for joy. It is fitting for the pure to praise him. That would be, that word praise is tehillah. Praise or hymn of praise, it is the most used word for praise in the Old Testament. It also comes from the word halal. Oh, which by the way, this is a cool fact. If you didn't know this, the word hallelujah uh, means halal Yahweh. Halal Yah. Hallelujah. Um, it means to praise joyously Yahweh. Um, when Paul was in prison, he sang tehillah praise and enthroned God. Uh, as God, and this was the praise that broke the prison doors open when Paul was in prison, and uh, salvation came and set the jailers uh, free, literally, but also spiritually. <laughs> uh, they gave their, they started following Jesus after that. So, we're a lot of us know the the verse God is enthroned. We just read it. Um, he's enthroned upon our praises. So when we enthrone God, that is to heal a praise. Um, we do this a lot. So it's really great. Um, to heal the praise kind of, yeah, it puts God in his rightful place of like recognizing him as king and as Lord and as a ruler and sovereign. So that's to heal the praise. 
Everybody say it again. Tehillah. Tehillah. All right, how do you guys think you pronounce this one? Tuda. Wrong. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> it's pronounced Tuda, which is weird. Uh, it's like Judah, but D. Um, I knew you guys were all going to say Tauda. Set you up. All right, Psalm 100. It says, Shout with joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with singing with joy. There's a lot of words there for praise, um, but shout with joy to the Lord. That would be Tuda praise. It's an offering of thanksgiving. It means to praise uh, no matter the circumstance. It's just being thankful to God. Um, one time I heard a guy named David define it as praising God for something that has not happened yet. So you give him a thank offering for what he's going to do in the future. Um, it's not a responsive praise. It's just, it's almost like a prophetic praise. You're praising him for the thing that hasn't happened yet. Um, this happened in the Bible. Guys, isn't that crazy? David did this. Other people did this. Um, let's see what else I got written here for this one. Oh, yes. Right here in my notes it says, lifting your hands in praise begins the breaking in the one praising that is needed to defeat the oppression of the enemy. Raising the hands is a sign of surrender, signaling all others that you have been given over to God. Um, I'm going to read Psalm 50 real quick. Verse 23. Is this, is this good stuff, these Hebrew words? Giving thanks is a sacrifice that truly honors me, me being God. I'm not God, but you get it. If you keep to my path, I will reveal to you the salvation of God. So God is pleased with a, a worship of thanksgiving. All right, so the scripture also tells us that this is the way we enter God's courts is by thanksgiving. Um, everybody got that? Tuda. Tuda. Tuda one who set me free. Um, no one got that. All right, next we got Yada. Everybody say Yada. All right. Psalm 69, verse 30. It says this, Then I will praise God's name with singing, and I will honor him with thanksgiving, for this will please the Lord more than what? Sacrificing cattle. More than presenting a bull with horns and hooves. Uh, quite literally, this word means to extend the hand. Um, Really great. In Genesis, there's a story of Leah. Maybe you guys don't know the story. It's okay if you don't. Um, but she was waiting for a son, and she had her fourth son, named him Judah. And in the story, it says she raised her hands in exclamation of praise and then named her son Judah, which means praise. Um, so she lifted her hands. So this is like a responsive praise, where you praise as a result of God's blessing. So where Tuda is like, almost prophetic praise where you're like, okay, I'm praising because I know God's good. He's going to do something. And I'm thanking him for the things I haven't seen yet. This is like when you have seen and you have tasted and you just respond by lifting your hands. How many of you guys have ever been in worship and like the truth of the song or whatever just hits you, hits different, and you just like don't know what to do, but you're just like, I just got to get my hands up in the air. <laughs> it's just like a natural response. So it's a... Uh, yeah, literally means to extend the hand. Um, so, yeah, it's cool. Like, you know, we are 
we're whole beings, right? We're not just a soul or a spirit or like separately a body. We're like a whole being. And so uh, when we lift our hands, it's a sign of surrender. It's like it does something to us internally as well. Yada. I'm going to read one more verse because these are cool. Cool to me. Um, Psalm 32. Oh, yes. So, yeah, it says, finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. So, once again, this is a praise as a result of blessing. I forgot this in my notes. It says, uh, the word kind of means to, like, confess, confess with your mouth what you've seen. So, this, in Scripture could also mean like confession of sin or wrongdoing. Not as fun, I know, um, but you still need to do it. Uh, so it's acknowledging what God's character, who he is, and it's like a confession. Um, and so it's, it's similar to Tuda, which is interesting, but the heart posture is different. It's like rather than expectation, it's like a confession of like what I do what I've encountered, what I've seen, what I know to be true. Um, and then you're confessing it outwardly. This is yada praise. Everybody say yada again. Yada. That's a fun one. All right, here we go. Barack, Barack yeah. Obama. Uh, <laughs> Psalm 103, verse 1. We're just flipping through the Psalms here. Let all that I am praise the Lord with my whole heart. I will praise his holy name. I'm going to go to Psalm 89 because I think this one's better. No offense. Praise the Lord forever and ever. Amen and amen. Uh, this word praise here means to kneel, to bless God by kneeling. Um, yeah, I wrote this here. It says there's usually no vocal expression in Barak praise, but it has to do with your physical movement. This word is used 330 times in the Old Testament. Um, kingship is a concept that's not super normal to us here in the West because we have presidents and not kings. But when um, kneeling was like a sign of submission or also like uh, blessing the king for doing something good for you. So if the king supplied your needs, he took care of you, you would, you would bend your knee to him and it was a sign of, of blessing. So, uh, bless the Lord, O my soul, in Psalm 103. It means to bow before the Lord. How many of you guys have ever been in worship, and maybe it's the holiness of God or something about God's character that feels so overwhelming and real to you that it feels wrong to sing? And you're just like, you know what? I just got to get on my knees and be silent before the Lord. That would be Barak praise. I think I saw Luke doing some of this on Friday night. We were like singing about the holiness of God, and he was just like out here. I was like, he's barracking right now. Um, <laughs> uh, good stuff. All right, number, we're, we're almost there, guys. Number six, Zamar. This means to praise with the instrument, to touch with fingers the strings of an instrument, or to pluck a string instrument in celebration. This could accompany singing, or it could not. So there's a lot of instrumental worship in the Bible, which is pretty cool. Um, I'm going to read Psalm 33. Again, we've been in Psalm 33 a lot. Verse 2, it says, Praise the Lord with melodies on the lyre. Lyre. Make music for him on the ten-string harp. 
So if you play the harp in here, you're in good luck, good company. Um, how many of you guys are familiar with the story of Saul being oppressed by a tormenting spirit? Okay, David comes into his uh, courts, plays his little harp, and it relieves Saul of the tormenting spirit. So uh, it drove out the tormenting spirit and invited the presence of God in. This was Zamar praise. David didn't sing, doesn't say he sang, says he just played. And when he played, uh, God showed up and things started changing. So it's important because when we gather, it can kind of feel like, why we do the whole music thing? Like, what's the deal with this? And then sometimes people like, you know, criticize like, oh, we're making our music so emotional and like trying to invoke this feeling. It's like, maybe. Uh, but actually, this is what people did in the Bible. This is what God uh, commanded in the scripture, and it's what David did, that when we start playing music, it's Zamar praise, and God's presence shows up. It invites his presence. And so there's a weird mystery here. Like, you know, we can say, like, God is always with us. We have his Holy Spirit. That is true. But it's also true that when we begin to gather and play music and worship, that it's invitation of God's presence here among us, things start to change. Uh, David, like we just mentioned, was driving out dark and demonic spirits by the playing of his harp. It's not the harp. I think the guitar could do it too. Or maybe the rain stick. Hey. All right. Did we already do this one? Oh, we did tequila. We're on tefila. Sorry. Yep. So this actually, uh, we'll do this one quickly. This word actually isn't really uh, worship. It's more prayer or intercession. It's the word most commonly used in the Old Testament for intercession or prayer. Um, but it's interesting in the scripture, it is also a song sometimes. So sometimes there are songs of intercession. Uh, how many of you guys know the song? Let's think. Uh, Spirit Breakout. That would be a tefillah song. We are pleading for God's spirit to break out. We are or um, what's another good one? Like, uh, let heaven come. Sometimes we sing, let your will be done on earth as in heaven, or let heaven come. These are songs of intercession. They're songs of prayer. And so often in these settings, especially like on a bio oil weekend, uh, worship and prayer kind of go hand in hand because they happen at the same time. It's just natural that when we get in God's presence, we start to get after his heart and understand the things that he delights in and the things that he does not delight in, things that break his heart it can move us to a place of intercession, prayer, compassion. That's actually natural, and actually, it should happen. If it doesn't happen, uh, it's probably not good. <laughs> when we, it's a sign that you are capturing God's heart when you start to feel the, the burden of praying for the things that he is praying for and contending for. Does that make sense? Yes. Cool. Tefillah, not tequila and not tequila. Last one, Shabbat. Everybody say Shabbat. This is pretty similar to halal, but it means to uh, praise, to glory, to commend in a loud adoration, to proclaim with a loud voice. Um, triumph, yeah, shouting triumphantly. <laughs> this one says to address in a loud tone. Um, yeah, to commend, praise, triumphant praise. Uh, if you look in Psalm 145, which I'll read real quick. Boom, 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 boom. It says, let each generation tell its children mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. That proclaiming of power would be Shabbat praise. Um, 
Cool. So we got a few words here. Maybe I'll send these out in a text or something. Halal, Tehillah, Tuda, Yada, Barak, Zamar, Tefillah, Shabak. How many of you guys can recognize all those things we just talked about in a worship gathering that we do on a Sunday morning? Pretty cool, right? This worship that uh, is unto God has been happening for generations. And uh, David gave an extravagant offering of all these kinds of worship. I'm sure there was all sorts of different worship happening in David's tabernacle. There was halal, there was extravagant joy, there was intercession, there was lament, there was all these things uh, in the tabernacle. And now we, as his body, are what? The, the spiritual tabernacle, the, the spiritual place of hosting God's presence. And we now get to do the same thing of offer sacrifices of praise in our lives as well. So when we think about like, I was kind of thinking about like, where does this leave us, you know, at the end of all this? Um, I guess I wanted to encourage everyone and challenge people. All these eight words for worship we just talked about, begin to like do them in your everyday life. Uh, If worship is not a part of your everyday life, uh, I'm not trying to like shame you and say shame on you or something like that, but I actually encourage you to to like make an effort to make it a part of your life every day, um, whether it's through song or whether it's through just words. Uh, one of these words we read, which one is it? Oh my gosh. Yeah, Tuda would be like confessing what you know to be true about God. So like, I guess the thing I would encourage all of us to do is to kind of exercise those worship muscles a little bit throughout the week to uh, begin to call to attention the things that are true about God. Maybe it's like 10 minutes on your drive to work or something, and you just, in the car, just begin exclaiming praise to the Lord. Um, It will change your life, I promise you. (laughs) Uh, And if you're not a musician, that's okay. You don't have to be a musician to do this. At the same time, if you're not a musician, I would encourage you to maybe get out of your comfort zone a little bit and begin like singing praise to God in your like, yeah, on your drive to work or like if you don't want people to hear you, you know, you could like lock your door or something like that. But just like begin to sing and like exalt the Lord in your everyday life. It's gonna change your life and it's gonna change Sunday mornings. When you show up on Sunday mornings, if worship is a part of your life every day and we gather on Sunday mornings, it's just gonna feel like this explosion of praise of like, Thank you, Lord. I mean, I've done a lot of, like, different worship leader trainings. The number one, uh, maybe not the number one thing, but one of the things we always tell worship leaders is, like, whatever you do, don't show up on Sunday morning. Don't let that be your first time you've, like, been with God or praised God all week. Because we're, like, you know, you're trying to lead people in a room. We always tell people you can't lead people to a place you've never been. So how are you going to lead people in worship to God's presence if you've never been there yourself? Okay, I think that's true for worship leaders. I would put the same challenge on all of us just as Christians. Like, if, if worship here is, like, the first time we've, like, really let our souls be lifted to God in praise, it's going to be like a, it's like running a marathon when you haven't done any exercise in two weeks. You're just going to feel like, oh, how do I do this? How do I do this? And that's okay. If, that, if you're there right now, that's all right. But I encourage you this week to kind of maybe stretch out your arms a little bit and lift your hands in praise, maybe kneel in some barak silent praise, um, and let worship be just a part of your life. Let it be a part of your quiet time, your devotion time, and begin to just live that out. And I think when we do that, it's going to make Sunday mornings just a whole different experience. I already love Sunday mornings, so it's great. I'm not trying to say you need to be better or anything. Um, 
Does that make sense, everyone? Cool. Do you have anything you really want to add? Yeah. Thank you for the introduction. Um, okay. <laughs> um, so I think it's, it's significant that at the beginning we talked a lot about um, tents. I'm talking about the tabernacles. So two years ago, just the way that the, the Jewish calendar fell, this week in our calendar was the Feast of Tabernacles. And that was the time that Adrian and Abigail and I went to Jerusalem. And we had honestly never really studied the Feast of Tabernacles all that much. But something that as I was listening through all of this, and I want to kind of go big picture, application, and let's pray. But big picture is this. Of the three um, pilgrimage festivals, which means basically the whole nation shut down, everybody comes together for these things. Only the Feast of Tabernacles is open to all nations. Because it is at, you know, it's in the, the first, at the Passover, where we remember, right? We remember the Passover, the sacrifice that made a way for us. And Jesus gave his life at that, at that place of sacrifice. Pentecost happens 50 days later. And that is a different, those first two, Passover and Pentecost, were only for uh, the, the Jewish nation. But in the Feast of Tabernacles, it's open to everyone because there's this prophetic word that, that is given in Amos 9. It's given in Haggai. It's referred to in Habakkuk, and that is that there's a day when all of those nations, and remember, the word nations in Scripture isn't talking about countries, political entities. It's talking about peoples. But look at that map back there. Yeah, sorry, Trudy, yeah. There's still places on that map that have never heard the name of Jesus. And something about what Jared talked about in a very practical way, right? So we could go places that have been in 24-7 worship and prayer for 20 years, and you would sense there's a place of momentum that's happening, but like, it's not just about that physical location. We are being built together. Not just us, but we are being built as a household of God. And there's something about that household being activated regularly. Say regularly. In these eight words, right, that actually reveals Christ to the nations. And so I think that, you know, what, what struck me today is I think it's really easy to get comfortable in our own. Yeah, we, we find the ways that we're comfortable in giving God worship and praise. And, you know, for some of you that may be musically, for other words, you know, like it's, you know, in a certain spot on your couch with your coffee and your journal. And that's how you know how to be with the Lord. But like there's more than one way that we're told to give him praise. So it's obviously very different to make a loud shout than it is to be still and be on our face. And in doing these, it's not like a checklist that you have to do all the time. But if we're, if within our comfort, we never go beyond what we already know, then we're not experiencing the fullness of what we're invited into. So let's, let's stand together. I remember having a conversation with Mike this winter about 
church. And, you know, just like it seems like so much of, um, in, in the West, we put so much emphasis on gathering and seeking the presence of God. And like that is, good. I remember sitting in my living room talking about this. That is like, it's really good. It is not the, the primary thing given in the New Testament, but the presence of God we can't live without. And understanding what Jared is saying today, that as we come together collectively, as we gather together, together there is a difference in the way that God responds than just by ourselves. And we've talked a lot about that over these weeks. But I think that this morning, let's just pray that the way, I mean, just connecting it to the way that we would live as a tabernacle, as a, as a dwelling place of the Lord, would not only be something that gives him glory, but it would be something that reveals him. We sat in this room earlier this week with leaders from 13 different churches who came together to pray and to get resourced about how to mobilize everyday followers of Jesus to live out the gospel. Whenever I was going through and talking to the guy who was facilitating that meeting, you know, there were thousands of people represented. And when I think about what it would look like to see thousands of believers mobilized, but I sent some of them a message the next day because people were here praying and worshiping, and I sent them, I was like, it's crazy, we were here together last night talking about this, and now people are here praying and worshiping. And I think those things go together. So can we just take a moment, make this very practical in your own heart, how can you begin to practice these things that Jared has highlighted? But Jared, we really say thank you for sharing what you're carrying. We like we really receive this from you, man. But let's pray that as we practice this just as individuals and then we, we come together, right? So whether that's three of us coming together on Wednesday morning or all of us coming together on a Sunday night or a worship weekend or gathering with other churches to do this, as we practice it in our own lives, as we practice it together, can we believe that God will get glory and that Christ will be revealed? Can we pray into that, okay? Father, we love you. God, I just think of, of as we've read different places, as we've gone through those thousands of years of history, God, we know that the songs that will be lifted to you will last far beyond thousands of years. There will be songs for eternity of your goodness, of your grace, of your power. May we have those moments. Where our awareness of your your presence just leads us to bow before you. God, I pray for freedom. God, I pray that beyond our traditions, beyond our own comfort zone, God, for those who are more comfortable with spinning and dancing loudly but don't know how to be still, God, I pray for freedom. God, for those of us that feel more comfortably being quiet or only ever singing the melody, God, I pray for spontaneous songs to break out. I pray for freedom, for shouts of joy. God, would you cause us in our, in our day-to-day to grow in freedom, to grow in confidence, not in ourselves, but in your worthiness of every act of worship that we could give you. And God, would you join our hearts together as we begin to walk this out in our own individual lives, God, and, and together in small groups and together collectively and even going beyond ourselves together with the larger part of your bride. God, I pray... And I pray with my friends now, Jesus, would you come and be revealed in the midst of our praise? Would your, would the fact that you are enthroned be revealed?
May our worship speak to your worthiness. God, we pray that in this town, in this region, God, in the nations of the earth, that there would be an unveiling of the Christ. Now, God, I pray for every heart that is hurting, every place that is weary. Would you come and just refresh your people? And bring praise forth. Yeah, I just feel like I'm just, uh, just reminded of Psalm 40. You've put a new song in my mouth. You've been praised to our God. Many will see it and turn and trust the Lord. God, may even from the pit, as we wait on you, may our praise rise in a way that people can see. And may our hope be in you. We love you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer, please don't leave without getting it.